Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. My guest today is Dr. Christine Montross. She's a 2015 Guggenheim Fellow in nonfiction. She's also an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University. She's a practicing inpatient psychiatrist and performs forensic psychiatric examinations. She completed medical school and residency training at Brown University, where she received the Isaac Ray Award in Psychiatry and the Martin B. Keller Outstanding Brown Psychiatry Resident Award. She received her undergraduate degrees and a Master of Fine Arts in Poetry from the University of Michigan, where she also taught writing classes as a lecturer following graduation. Her latest book, Waiting for an Echo, was named a New York Times Book to Watch for, a Time Magazine Book to Read in July, and an Amazon.com Best Book of the Month. She has also written for many national publications. Dr. Montross has been named a 2017-2018 Faculty Fellow at the Cogut Center for Humanities, a 2010 McCall Johnson Fellow in Poetry, and the winner of the 2009 Eugene and Marilyn Glick Emerging Indiana Authors Award. Christine Montross, welcome to Compassion in Action. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really delighted to be talking with you, Fritzi. Thank you. Um, so I'm just going to jump right into it because we got a lot to cover. Um, what, in your opinion, is so devastating about solitary confinement? Mm -hmm. So, so I work as a psychiatrist in an inpatient psychiatric hospital. I work on um, the intensive treatment units of a freestanding psychiatric hospital. So these are patients who are um, acutely psychiatrically ill, it's sort of like the psychiatric version of an ICU. So people who are really hearing voices, seeing visions, actively trying to hurt themselves or other people. And I see how um, how much people struggle with those symptoms in an environment that is intentionally therapeutic. Um, so, so my work in, in jails and prisons really began um, trying to think about what happens when my patients end up in environments that are punitive rather than therapeutic, which they do very often, um, due largely to their symptoms, right? They're shouting in Starbucks or they're charging through TSA, believing that they need to get on a flight to, um, to interrupt some government ploy. Um, not because of really criminal intent by and large. And then when those people enter into the criminal legal system, um, and if they're in jails and prisons, very often they can end up in solitary confinement. And the reason being that, that our, our legal system and certainly our correctional facilities are structured around um, compliance, right? When, when a police officer or a correctional officer um, issues a command, they expect you to comply. Well, people who are struggling with serious psychiatric symptoms are not always able to comply. And if you, if you don't comply in jails and prisons, um, you may well end up in solitary confinement. The problems with solitary confinement are enormous. First and foremost, it's um, adjudicated entirely within the prison system. So no judge sentences someone to solitary confinement. That's a prison that's levied by the prison itself. Um, and we know that, that people who are psychiatrically ill become more ill in solitary confinement. And even people who are psychologically well can become psychiatrically ill in solitary confinement. So the problems are, are numerous and they are large. It's, it's devastating. And can you explain what decompensation means? Yeah, so decompensation is, is maybe a more poetic term would sort of be unraveling, right? So when we think about people who are usually composed, and if you, if you, um, you know, decompose has this kind of, of organic, you know, it sounds like rotting or something like that. But really what we're talking about when we talk about someone decompensating is that they, um, that they are, they're losing that composure. They're losing that, um, that, that way that so many of us can feel held together. And decompensating really means that symptoms start to flare um, and people worsen psychologically. And that's what we see so often um, in, in punitive environments in general, and certainly in solitary confinement specifically. The Mandela uh, rules say that more than 15 days is, is torture. Mm -hmm. um, why, do, why do you think they come up with 15 days? And, but 
I've heard that within seven days, the EEG presents as having less activity in the brain. Right. And so we, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Me. And Thanks. I've talked to um, correctional officers and they say within two days, they can see the effects of solitary. Yeah. I think it's so powerful that we do see um, evidence of brain changes, that people enter into a more stuporous state, that people respond differently, become less responsive. And they also, um, you know, one of the most fascinating things that I researched in writing, Waiting for an Echo, um, was that people respond in predictable ways when they're in these situations of sensory deprivation. So whether that's someone who's in solitary confinement or someone who's stranded on a desert island after a shipwreck or a plane crash, someone who's um, held in a Korean prisoner of war camp in the Korean War, um, or someone who's flying long distances without any kind of visual cues at night, we know that human beings respond in predictable ways to these periods of isolation and sensory deprivation. And so the things that we see are not just um, changes in sleep, changes in EEG patterns, which we do see, but people also routinely report things like violent and aggressive fantasies, self-injurious behavior. And when, and when we think about the kinds of behaviors that we we want um, that that we try to um, we talk about corrections, right? We want to shape people's behavior in in positive and constructive ways, um, putting them in situations that we know engender violent fan and aggressive fantasies should not should not be our aim. Um, and so the amygdala gets uh, it's I guess would be overactive. Is that what it is, or what is the? Yeah, so so I think there are various neurological pathways that are involved. And when we think about the amygdala, we think of sort of like our reptile brain, you know, um, and, and the, the seat of emotion and impulsivity. Um, uh, and, and so I think that's, that's a part of it, to be sure. I think we're also, you know, I think it also makes sense to talk about this in, in common sense ways that all of us can understand, not just based in neuroscience. And I think one of the things that this moment of the pandemic um, really offers for all of us is a rare moment of empathic connection where we can understand what we're really doing to people when we isolate them. You know, I think that that all of us have felt um, for, for a year now, but certainly in the earliest stages of the pandemic, how deeply wrong and inhuman it felt to not be able to go to the bedsides of loved ones who were ill, to not be able to attend the funerals of loved ones who died, to not be able for grandparents to see their grandchildren. Um, these, are, these are critically important parts of humanity, um, of healthy psychological thriving. And we intentionally deprive people of these things when we incarcerate them. So I think that, I think that it, it, it's helpful to think about the neuroscience and to understand that we are, we have these, um, these, these quantitative ways of, of measuring what we're doing to people. It's also helpful just to think about our understanding. You know, when we think about solitary confinement, a friend of mine said, imagine your bathroom and imagine living there for seven years. You know, 15 days is nothing compared to what, um, to how we adjudicate solitary confinement in America. People spend huge portions of their lives in these atmospheres. And we have to, we have to really reckon with that. Yeah, and I, I just talked to a man who just returned from prison and he said, I had I did a short time in solitary and I said, what was that? He said, well, my last, my last time in solitary was a year and a half. And I'm like, that isn't short. Mm -hmm. And then as the conversation went, he's, it was up to eight years that he had been in solitary. He goes home, he doesn't wanna be in, in Walmart. He doesn't wanna be in society, he wants to go back to his room. Mm -hmm. And so we've disabled, we're disabling our returning citizens and like this is this is a dangerous thing that we're doing and have done and I think that the majority of Americans don't understand, I didn't understand when I started working on Waiting for an Echo, that 95% of the people we incarcerate come back into our communities. So, so it does not serve any of us, caged or free alike, to treat people with an inhumanity that renders them less able to enter back into society, less able to function, less able to hold a job and pay taxes and, and be um, you know, uh, uh, contributing members of our communities. 
you know, people are released routinely from solitary confinement straight out to the streets. You know, I write about a, a man who was released from um, solitary confinement, years of solitary confinement into the New York City Port Authority and how overwhelming that stimulation was. And when we think about our, our stated goals for corrections, we say we want safety and justice. Um, this is not a best practice to, to achieve safety and justice. It's great for achieving vengeance. It's great for causing suffering. But when we think about we, if we really want safe communities and justice, then dehumanizing and degrading people and then having them return to our communities is not the right path. Right, but not to even, not to even mention public safety. Right. Because people are no, in no condition to get a job or to um, get housing. How, who's gonna rent a, a house to a person in this situation? So then we've created a homeless. We've created an, an inability to function in society. And I think a component of that too, you know, returning to the isolation, it's not just, it's not just the draconian conditions, which they are, by the way, right? So small rooms where you're by yourself, or you just have a bed and a toilet and a sink, and that's it, where you spend 23 hours a day, you have one hour a day of recreation in a caged uh, concrete area, also in isolation, you have a trap through which your door is shut, or a trap in your door through which your food is shoved. It's not just that, it's also um, that, that we intentionally fracture and, and inhibit relationships with people on the outside. And again, in this moment, when we, when we are all longing to see our friends, when we're all longing to see our loved ones, and we think about how much kind of lesser we all feel without those easy connections. And then we think about how integral those are to all of our, you know, for those of us who live free lives, how integral they are to our own health, happiness, but also success and productivity. And, and when we incarcerate people and we isolate them, you know, we send them to prisons often very far away from their home communities. We throw up all kinds of obstacles and barriers to connection. Uh, visits are very hard. Um, phone calls are extremely expensive. Um, and so I think also we need to really um, consider that the punishments that we um, employ are, are quite cruel and inhumane, but they also go against um, these really basic things we know that are required for human um, flourishing. Yeah, and that can go back to child development. We, you know, we see what when you put a, an orphan in a, in a crib and, a, you know, basically just feed him their brain matter shrinks and they're unable to function in society or you, you know, Bruce Perry has a bunch of examples of, of infants and they become either sociopathic or inability, uh, unable to function. So, and we know this. And, 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 you know, as, as you know, from your work, as I know from my work and, and some of those studies show that kids who are institutionally reared do show reduction in, in brain matter, reduction in neural connectivity. You know, they have poorer outcomes in the long run because of these physical changes. Um, and, and as one paper described, it's like the, the brain is waiting for instructions as to how to take shape and form that it doesn't receive. Um, and, and so it's important too in our discussion of solitary, and this is really where, where the title of the book comes from, um, is the, the sort of realization that I have that, that we do not just do this to adults, that we also incarcerate children in solitary confinement in America. And I write in the book about um, going to a juvenile facility in Connecticut and, and asking what the longest period of time was that a child could be um, in, in solitary confinement. And these are kids ages 14 to 20. And the, um, the psychologist there said to me they could be held for up to a year in solitary confinement. And we think about, um, you know, you think about a 14-year-old brain. Um, I have a 14-year-old daughter. And I think about, um, you know, how much she is, is um, missing out on in the pandemic, right? You think about how 14-year-old girls, girls are supposed to be running around in packs with their arms around each other and, you know, flopping all over each other at slumber parties and those kinds of things. Those things can't happen. And we worry about our children in the pandemic as a result of that. But then we do, we, we choose through our policies to um, inflict this on children um, in juvenile facilities. And we know, we know how damaging that is for them to be in, in environments like this. Several states have uh, ended 
and mentally ill and juveniles, but there are still states that are doing this. Yeah, and, no question. And so we discover things about ourselves through other people. Um, when you're when you're when you're going crazy, if you if you have someone to reflect back to you, you know you know maybe that's not the right idea. Maybe you maybe there aren't aliens coming down to get you, but you need that re reflection, or you you don't have any anyone to validate or or disarm your thoughts. And that's one of the problems of solitary. But what happens to a juvenile brain when it's in solitary? I mean, what are the, what are the ramifications there? Yeah, exactly those kinds of things that I said to you, right? So we know that physically the brain changes in, in solitary confinement for juveniles. Um, the neurochemistry of the brain can change in solitary for juveniles. And also we think about those, those the importance of those connections, you know, the importance of having um, friend relationships, family relationships, those sustaining things, and those experiences that are really essential um, for healthy maturation, right? Kids are supposed to be um, taking their math tests and advocating for themselves with a teacher and learning how to drive and um, arguing with their friends and making up with their friends and experimenting with dating and individuating from their parents, you know, all these things that are part of a healthy, healthy experience of, of adolescence um, that, that can't happen in these punitive environments. So again, and when we're thinking about our end goals and, and I, you know, I, I keep returning to this, but I think it's really important important to do so when we think about the end goals of what our intentions are, if our intentions are to help people um, who have come from backgrounds that have led them to um, commit crimes and our intentions are to keep them from committing crimes in the future, damaging them does not accomplish that, right? So, and if, and if you are um, short-circuiting adolescent development, you're rendering them less capable of functioning in the world, less capable of achieving their intellectual development, their social development, their emotional development, then they're gonna be less able to function in the adult world in the way that we hope that they would. It's just another example of disabling members of our society. One of the things um, I've noticed is when just people who've lived in prison, they return, they're faced with thousands of decisions when they had no decisions or, you know, they had six or seven decisions a day, you know, do I eat this food or not? Mm -hmm. um, so just the act of incarcerating creates a disability. It's, mm -hmm. and there's an, there's an infantilizing piece to it, right? There's a way in which um, people are, are no longer responsible for their own lives. And I think um, I had the opportunity in researching Waiting for an Echo to go to Scandinavia and look at how things are done differently. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they, they have had, they had in the 1990s, a system that was very similar to ours with high recidivism rates, with prison violence, with escapes, violence between officers and, and detainees, between detainees, and they really decided it was important to make a change. Um, and, and one of the really central changes that they made, and the results have been outstanding, the violence is reduced, the recidivism rates are far lower, the costs are lower. One of the really central changes that they made was to say, look, if you want um, someone to be able to go to work, make their own, do their own grocery shopping, make their own meals, um, set aside money, pay some taxes, then, then you need to um, be, you need to have those expectations of them in this environment. You need to support them to make, to, to build those skills in this environment so that when they leave, it's a natural continuation. And so seeing a prison where men were doing their own grocery shopping, cooking their own food, preparing their own meals, um, by the way, with knives and kitchens, you know, and, and, and watching um, the sort of agency then that they had in their lives, their responsibility they had for their lives, the contrast between that constructive um, logic-based model and, and ours, which does have this infantilizing um, aspect was really striking to me. Yeah, it's called normalization, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the um, things that stood out to me when you talked about Norway, Ari Hoydal, I guess his name is, um, he talked about, we can't treat hard with hard. Mm -hmm. um, it's, we have to go treat hard with soft. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was such a stark, a stark difference to what we're doing here. 
Yeah. So when they when they talk about that in Norway, and you're right, so he's the the warden of a, a really innovative prison um, outside of Oslo, and he and he talked about how um, the government went to the experts in the field. They sh they said, here's what we want: we want reduced recidivism, we want less crime. Um, how do we get there? And the experts said, you have to stop meeting hard with hard. You have to start meeting hard with soft. What that means is you have to let go of this idea of pure retribution, of harsh punishment. And instead, you have to try to address some of the things that led the person to commit the crimes in the first place. I know this ties in with the work that you do in, in history of trauma um, and, and, and your work in compassion and, and in ACEs. But, you know, what? so they do something that makes so much logical sense and yet is so far from what we do, they do a needs assessment the moment someone comes into prison. So they say, okay, let's look at the factors that led you to the situation that you were in. And so if you, and, and we're going to address those deficient, any deficiencies that emerge during the time that you're here. So in contrast to this American idea of doing time, you know, they will look and say, okay, are you addicted to substances? Then we'll use this time to get you substance abuse treatment. Do you have anger management issues? Then we're gonna put you in anger management class. Do you need fiscal responsibility training, job training, education training, language training? Then we're gonna really focus um, and provide those services to you so that we use this time constructively so that when you leave here, um, then, then you don't do those things again. You know, one of the psychologists said to me, it's not just um, uh, you stole a TV, but why did you steal a TV? Why didn't you have enough money to buy yourself a TV? Um, and let's try to figure out how to shore up those deficiencies. So when you leave here, you don't steal a TV again. Yeah, it's, it's common sense practices. It makes perfect sense. Um, but I want to, I want to get back to uh, incarcerating mentally ill people. The, um, the three largest mental health facilities in the United States are LA County Jail, Cook County Jail, and Rikers Island. That's right. That's how we're dealing with our mental health issues. We don't even want to deal with it. And we so we, we warehouse them outside of town. Um, and, and, and we there's a, a, a very clear history as to why this arose. And, and you're absolutely right. There, there are more than 350,000 inmates with severe mental illnesses in jails and prisons in our country right now. So these are people with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, major depression. That's not even counting people with anxiety, post-traumatic stress, substance abuse issues. So that's a huge number of people. And when we look at how we got here, um, there's this very clear path. So we used to have state hospitals that housed the most severely mentally ill. Um, there were certainly problems with the state hospitals. This was in the 1950s and 60s. And so um, in the midst of, of seeking reform for these hospitals that, that were very often pretty pretty troubling places. Um, there was a real push to um, have these people treated in the community instead of in facilities. The problem with that was that when people were released from the hospitals and the hospitals were closed and they were sent out to the facilities, the funds that had been promised um, to provide community care for the mentally ill never materialized. So suddenly people who had required intensive levels of mental health treatment, medication, housing, food, support, had none of those things and began sleeping in our parks, sleeping in our door and doorways of businesses, begging for money. Um, and, and so at that moment, you see the beginnings of what we call the criminalization of mental illness. And now without hospitals to take people, people are taken instead to a different kind of institution, um, and that's jail. So, so the, the drive for deinstitutionalization, which was the movement to move people out of facilities and into the community, in fact, resulted in something we've come to understand as trans institutionalization, that people just went from a therapeutic environment into a punitive one. And that's what we're seeing the, the, um, the wreckage of today, these decades later. And then so when you put someone mentally ill into solitary because that the the guards don't know how to deal with this the correctional officers do not know how to basically it's against their functioning so they 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 do what we're doing is they put them out of reach and out of mind and, and i think i think um one of the things that I really was heartened by um, in my research was how this is a situation that everyone agrees is not tenable. So correctional officers um, really struggle with this. They're not 
they're not trained to deal with psychiatric emergencies. And I know as a psychiatrist on my unit, it can be, it can be a tense situation when someone is, is in the midst of a psychiatric emergency. And I have a lot of training in this regard, right? I went to medical school, I went to residency, I'm, you know, more than a decade into my career as an attending psychiatrist. And I still, you know, my adrenaline rises too in a moment of a psychiatric emergency. And I have all that specialized training to draw upon. Correctional officers don't have that training. In addition, you know, there are really, really specific um, goals and requirements in those facilities. Their intention is control. You know, my intention is safety and healing. Um, the, uh, uh, the intention in a, in a prison is compliance and control those, and security. You know, those are really different aims. Um, and, and I think this is probably most easily crystallized in thinking about um, the attention right now that's, that's coming into policing as, as the front lines of mental health emergencies. Um, and when you think about um, uh, the difficulties that police have coming into these situations as well, um, and how we don't do that for any other kind of, emer of health emergency. That if someone has um, a car accident or is having a stroke, we send trained clinicians who can stabilize a fracture, start oxygen, stop bleeding, start an IV and transport them to the correct facility. We don't do that for the mentally ill and psychiatric emergencies. So police and correctional officers are also suffering from the requirement that they are handling these fraught situations that ought to be handled by a different kind of trained professional. So I say it, it gives me some hope because I think there's a rare consensus uh, among um, clinicians, among detainees and prison advocates um, and, and correctional officers and police to say, this is not the right arrangement here. Um, that gives me some hope. And you illustrate that so well in um, how you de-escalated a situation in your book. I highly recommend you read Waiting for an Echo. Um, but here's the thing, when people commit a crime, there's trauma, there's mental illness, and mental health issues with creating a crime because you, you can't see a way forward to do it in a social manner. Mm -hmm. So what we're really dealing with across the board is anyone convicted of a crime is convicted of having trauma. Is that's, my, that's the algorithm I've come up with. And so it's really a mental health issue from the beginning, from the beginning, from the start when you arrest somebody, mental, there's a mental illness aspect to what's going on in their lives. Well, certainly we know that people who come from backgrounds of trauma are particularly vulnerable to becoming involved in, um, in the kinds of activities that, that might lead them to, to end up in terms of um, encounters with the legal system. We, we know that that can be true. Um, you know, I think also uh, we, we do underestimate how, um, and, and I think about this, especially in terms of juveniles, we do underestimate how people can be traumatized by their own actions as well. You know, we think about gang-involved youth, for example, um, and, and we don't think about how traumatizing it could be to perform an act of violence if you're a child um, and you've witnessed the violence that your friends or your fellow gang mem members are enacting. You see the what you're asked to do and the kind of um, crisis of the soul to know that you yourself have done something that you witnessed and was a trauma as well. That's not, that's not to diminish um, the trauma on the victim at all. It's to say both of these things are true. Um, but, you know, this comes back, I think it really comes back to this idea of how much in our society we prioritize vengeance um, when we're thinking about people who have committed crimes. And I think we have to decide how important that is to us. Right now, we act as if it's the lone most important thing, that people who commit crimes should suffer. We want them to suffer. If they wind up in jail or prison, we don't care what happens to them there because we think they ought to suffer. Um, and so if suffering is our goal, we're doing a wonderful job. Um, but is vengeance really our primary goal? Ought it be our primary goal? And I think you and I would say, no, right? That there are things that we should want beyond vengeance. We should want healing. We should want accountability and responsibility. We know people are less apt to engage honestly with the things that they've done 
if they're being made to suffer in these extraordinary ways. Um, so I think, I think it's a call to us as a nation to determine what our goals are. And again, if we want safety and justice, we have to let go of this idea that vengeance is the most critical aspect. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's either an eye for an eye or do as do unto others. It's the, it's from the same book. So we have the choice and they're both, you know, they're both condoned by the book. So um, one, another thing I want to talk about is accountability because we want people who commit crimes to be accountable. And they're reminded every day that they're, they're called offenders. They're called convicts. Um, what about the accountability of the crimes that com get committed when somebody's been in prison and then they go out and commit another crime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who's accountable to that, especially yeah. if they're coming from solitary? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think this idea of accountability is such an interesting one, partially because of what I just said, which is um, a person's ability to engage with and really reflect upon and reckon with what they have done um, diminishes the more unfairly that they think they're being treated as a result. So when we sentence someone to 356 years in prison or three strikes and you're out for a drug offense, you know, people feel like that's wrong. So I'm not even going to you know, reckon with what I've done because this is ridiculous that you're treating me this way. So, so part of our judicial response inhibits the ability for people to um, be held accountable. I also think one of the really important things for us to understand here is that um, many of us, I would say most of us, perhaps even all of us, um, break the law and, and are not held accountable. So, you know, there's a chapter in my book where I write about um, being in a dinner party and, and telling the host of the dinner party, I'm really, what I'm, what I'm having trouble with is getting people to care because people say, well, once that someone's in prison, if you can't stand the time, don't do the crime. You know, you're a bad person if you've ended up there. But in fact, we've all broken the law in ways um, that, pe that people other than us um, have faced consequences for. And so um, I, we go around the, the, the table at the dinner party and we all list the crimes that we've committed. And, and, and this, these are people that manage my finances, take care of my children, prescribe medications, um, teach children. Um, and, and they listed felonies, right? Like carrying a handgun that wasn't licensed to them across a college campus, you know, breaking a car out of an impound lot um, and putting a different license plate on it, stealing a credit card out of a copy machine and, and spending $1,000 on it before they threw it away. Um, and uh, mailing marijuana across state lines, which is a federal drug offense. Not one of them had suffered any kind of legal consequence from it. So I also think we have to um, admit that accountability um, we expect accountability from people whose race, whose socioeconomic circumstances land them in prison and jail for things that those of us of different races and different socioeconomic statuses do all the time without being held accountable. So I think this question of accountability is an important one. And also let's be real about it um, and, and have expectations that are, are more egalitarian. Okay. So now my big question is who's accountable in solitary? So what I want to know is, I don't know how I can't, we cannot figure out how many people are in solitary right now. We don't know why they're in there. We don't know how long they've been in there and how long they're going to stay in there. Why are they being, you call it whack-a-mole. Like if they, if they go again, if they assault a guard or there is a cell extraction, suddenly they're in there for the, they're back to the beginning. But who's accountable for yeah. what's going on? It's, as you said, it's not a judicial process. A, a CEO can make a decision about somebody's life here. Yeah. That's so so we're accountable, right? So we're, we, we who vote, um, we who elect tough on crime politicians, we who elect legislators who agree to um, private prison contracts, right? We, we are all accountable in this. And so I think um, 
part of our accountability then is to educate ourselves. There's a wonderful organization called Solitary Watch that's run in part by Jean Casella and Sarah Shord. Um, and they shine light on these issues and try to really penetrate the intentional obfuscation of, um, of information about what happens in these closed facilities. Um, but I think, I think we do right to start asking these questions and to demand um, um, a, a line of sight into what's being done to our fellow human beings. Um, I also think, um, you know, we, we have to start thinking about how we all perceive um, risk Right, so, so the idea is that people are held in solitary confinement because they're extremely dangerous. They can't be controlled any other way. But as you say, the majority of people in solitary confinement have gotten there through an accumulation of nonviolent offenses. So, you know, you get tickets in prison, disciplinary infractions, and you can get tickets for having too many pencils in your room. You can get tickets for not eating a meal. You can get tickets for eating the wrong part of your meal. You know, somebody talks about getting a ticket for eating an apple core and then getting a ticket for leaving his apple on his tray. Um, you can get tickets for refusing medication. You can get tickets for, for having your cell be messy. So all of these kind of small things can accumulate. And if you get enough tickets, it can result in um, the, the punishment beyond the punishment punishment of jail, which is solitary confinement. For people with mental illness, this is a really easy cycle to fall into. So again, back to this idea of the difficulty that mentally ill people have complying. When someone is paranoid or hearing voices or seeing visions, they struggle to follow instructions. And if you don't um, follow the instructions in prison, you get in trouble. And that getting in trouble can very quickly lead to solitary confinement. Then if you behave that way in solitary confinement, your sentence in solitary just extends and extends. You earn more and more days there. So um, one of the deputy wardens that I talked to talked about how the biggest problem that he saw with this these huge numbers of mentally ill people in, in the jail and prison system was that they bury themselves in SEG, then SEG being segregation, administrative segregation or solitary confinement, that they um, they can't stop behaving in the ways that accumulate infractions, and therefore they spend days, weeks, months, years, decades in these situations. And no one is accountable. I'm back to that. It's like, we don't know what's going on. They're, they're way out of town, and there are these fortresses that, that are, you know, impenetrable and, and invisible to us. And so it's oversight, it's sight. We need to put eyes on this. And you know, we're our our organization is right now trying to find out who's in solitary and why. That's one of the things. And I would like all governors to start coming forward and saying, yes, we need to know why. The other thing is, um, you talk about the correctional officers in Rhode Island and that they have a long memory. And one of the reasons solitary is continuing in Rhode Island is because one of the officers were killed like 15 years ago. Yeah. And so they don't even care that it makes no sense. This is retribution, right? Is this is more vengeance well, or? I don't, maybe, but I also think it, it's fear sometimes. And, and, you know, one of the things that I write about in the book, I mean, it's a hard job to be a correctional officer. And, and there is, we have, we have created these environments that, that are dangerous environments, right? They're adversarial environments. One of the things when Norway talks about meeting hard with soft, they, they transformed the role of the um, correctional officer to be one more like a social worker that these are people that work like a nurse or a social worker that are, are, are attached to a detainee in the same way the nurse is attached to a patient, that they get to know that person, that they help the person heal, that they help the person, um, you know, uh, develop a plan for their incarceration and then for their life beyond. Um, so, so I think we have to understand that we are putting correctional officers in a situation where um, it is an adversarial relationship. And therefore, they are at risk, right? It is they are often in, in, in an environment that can be a dangerous um, an, an environment with violence. Um, what we know is that solitary confinement does not help with that. And that's the really important thing to underscore is that um, prisons that utilize solitary confinement do not see a reduction in violence. They can even see an increase in violence. 
prisons that, that get rid of their solitary confinement do see a reduction in violence. So we have to look at the logic, but I think, I think it comes down to fear of risk. So I think it's less about retribution and more about being in a job that is a high stress, difficult, scary job. And then thinking 15 years ago, I knew the guy who was killed by an inmate. And if and I, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to my colleagues. And so as a result, I want to think of the thing that controls this the most. And in my mind, the thing that that seems like is this most severe form of control, solitary confinement. You know, I think I think we do wrong to um, to call that um, uh, to call that out as really radical or um, irrational. It it is, and yet we all behave in similar ways, right? Like I think even even in the pandemic, we're seeing. You know, I saw, I remember in the early days of the pandemic, um, seeing a, a gaggle of teenagers riding by on uh, like mopeds with masks on and no helmets. And I thought they've got the risk wrong, right? They're less likely to catch COVID and die of COVID than they are. I mean, I was glad they had their masks on, but they're far more likely um, to get in a crash on their mopeds with no helmets and end up dead that way. Um, so, so I think what we have to understand is that in medicine, and I think this is where my background is, is helpful to me in this situation. In medicine, we assess risk all the time, right? I um, have patients who come in who say they want to kill themselves. I have to decide when I feel safe to let them out of the controlled environment of the hospital, even though I can't know that that risk is for sure gone. If I wanted the risk to be zero, I would keep them in the hospital forever. That I can't do that. That's what we do with solitary confinement and some of these really extended sentences is we say we want the risk to be zero. Well, we don't do that in medicine, right? We don't give mammograms to everyone starting at age 13. We look at it, we say there is a risk that uh, you know that a 25-year-old woman will get breast cancer and die from it, but it's such a small risk that we don't think it merits all of the mammograms that would have to take place of young women. So we're going to start at 40 and we're going to accept that there's some risk that goes with that. We do that all the time in medicine. We ought to do it in criminal justice as well. Well, but the interesting thing is we're not extending the risk thinking to when they're returned to society, because eventually they will be returned to society. And the recidivism for people in long-term long -term, uh, solitary is up to 97%. So a crime is gonna get committed. We know that, we know by keeping someone in, in solitary for a long time, probably there's gonna be a crime. It could be to himself, it could be um, suicide, but it's still, it's still a, there's still a victim that happens from solitary. So we can't just keep it safe in the prison environment. We have to extend our thinking into, into okay, how is this person going to be when he gets home? And that's the short-sightedness of corrections at this point is we're not keeping our, our public safe. Mm -hmm. And they are public servants, public safety servants, is that is their job. Mm -hmm. And that we know well we do know we do know how to integrate people into society better and to reduce recidivism right like we see we see norway and sweden and germany we see places that are doing this right so so we don't have to reinvent the wheel um there there are ways of doing this um and and so i think the question is really this question of will we make the philosophical change that we need to to drive the change in our practices you know i think it is i think it's difficult um when people can't afford to send their own children to college it's very hard to say that they want to fund um college courses in prisons. And yet that's exactly what we need to be doing. If we, if we want to um, reduce recidivism rates, we need the very programs that keep getting cut. And we cut them um, out of this kind of blanket argument of retribution. Um, I'm not spending money on those prisoners, right? And, and without um, understanding how short-sighted it is that, that we spend a lot more money in the long run if there's recidivism and people return over and over again because we've failed to give them the services they need that could keep them out of prison while they were there the first time. Exactly. It's, and it's one of the principles of the Norway model is activation. And activation is getting people out of their cells doing things. It, it doesn't have to be education. It could be vocation. It could be 
just sitting in a group therapy and that's free. It's the activation is getting them busy, having their minds occupied and also, you know, coming to terms with what they've done and what they want to do. You know, let's start making a plan. Mm -hmm. They need a plan. They don't have a plan. And I also think hope is really important in these settings. If you have hope, you, you have, you have people who want to get up in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, wow. Um, one of the things you quote what, um, from, one of, from one of the people you were talking with was every single link in the chain is broken. And by that broken beyond repair. And, but you say that's good news. I do. Because I think then it just means like, let's acknowledge that our model is not the working model. And, and as I said, let's look to the places that are, are doing it right. And let's, let's emulate that, right? So, so it, it's not as if it's an unsolvable problem. It's not as if it's a problem without a solution. We know, we can look at the metrics and see what are the practices that yield the results that we want. We can see it. We, we, we can see that places are doing it. So the, the, the obstacle is then implementing that change. Um, and so I think, I think if our, our system was working, you know, 79% of the way, it'd be harder to say, let's try something radically different. It's not working 79% of the way. Um, and I think that's, that's partially what I say um, that I, I find hope in is I think, I think people from all corners are acknowledging that. You know, in, in the midst of an era where we have extraordinary, extraordinary partisanship, um, criminal justice reform is one of the only areas I can think of that has bipartisan support. So Newt Gingrich and Cory Booker on a stage together sharing goals for criminal justice reform. You have, you know, um, you have big, big right-wing voices talking with big, big progressive voices sharing the same goals moving forward because we can see um, that this is too expensive, it's inhumane, it doesn't serve the goals of our community, it doesn't serve the people who are incarcerated and their families, it doesn't serve the home communities, it doesn't serve the prison communities. So, 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 so many different people are recognizing that this system is not what it ought to be, um, that I do think that's good news. I do think that if, I mean, where else are we finding bipartisan terrain right now? Um, if this is the place, then it's proof that there's the possibility of change. And I think I do find a lot of hope in that. Um, I just want to point to one more thing. Um, Rick Ramish in Colorado, he did away with long-term solitary and he cites an 80% reduction in violence. Mm -hmm. So we have proof. We have proof that it works and that people, when they're not tortured and their brains aren't um, exacerbated, they function and there's less violence. Um, one of the one of the things that I observed when I was in um, when I was in supermax facilities and one of the ones that I visited often Northern Correctional Facility in Connecticut um, actually has just announced recently that they're closing, which I think is a victory um, as these supermax facilities are not bringing about the goals that that people thought they would bring about. Um, but but one of the things that I saw happening over and over again is this kind of circular logic that um, the, the mindset that people who are in these facilities are monsters and therefore anything that they do within the facility is driven by the fact that they're somehow monstrous at their core. Well, what, what I saw um, was that there were acts of um, pretty pretty graphic self-injury, pretty graphic uh, attempts at violence. Um, but as a psychiatrist, I understand the circumstances in which we see those kinds of human behaviors. It was chalked up in prison as these people are sociopaths. Well, you don't see severe self-injury among sociopaths. It just doesn't happen. Where you do see severe self-injury is in people with an extraordinary history of trauma or people who have no other means of, of communication or, or empowerment. So, you know, an example I write about in my book is, is um, Cuban migrants who are trying to establish um, a safe dry foot in the wet foot dry foot policy on American soil. 
And these are people who fled Cuba. And now, you know, the Coast Guard is talking about how people are, you know, swallowing chemicals, cutting themselves, burning themselves on the ships. So they'll be taken to a hospital. Well, these are the same kinds of behaviors that we see in solitary confinement. People who have no way to communicate their distress other than um, harming themselves because everything else in their environment has been stripped away from them. Every other means of communication, of protest, um, of connection, everything. And so I think we have to really be mindful of um, the, the, the behaviors that we see in these supermax facilities are not behaviors that indicate that these people are monsters. They're behaviors that we cause and we create by putting people in monstrous conditions. Yes, who really are the monsters is the question. I mean, not to cast dispersions, but we have to consider what we're doing because we're responsible. And it's it's me, my tax dollars are paying for this. Your tax dollars are paying for this. And that money can go to so many. We can go to prison programs and community programs and you know integration programs or whatever. Um, is there anything else you wanna tell us? Can you tell us about the good news about your book? Oh, that's very sweet. So, um, so uh, the um, yes, Waiting for an Echo was just named a finalist for a Los Angeles Times um, book prize. Um, that's exciting. There are five, five books in the running and it's just a, an absolute delight to have it be on that short list. That was a wonderful, wonderful, happy surprise. And um, I hope it, it's actually a, a fantastic collection of books that really focus on justice. So um, uh, it's, it's a, a list well worth checking out because I think that some of these issues are really at the forefront. So that that's, that's another point of hope, Fritzi, is, that, um, is to see that there's, um, um, you know, there's that people are paying attention. Um, and that's good news. And your book is, I just want to encourage all the listeners to please pick up your book, Waiting for an Echo. It is, it, it transformed, transformed me. This is, this is what I did. This is how your much I looks like my copy. I, I, <laughs> I have, I, <laughs> yes. And just educate yourself about, um, solitary confinement so we can really change these policies now it's urgent because the people in solitary will be coming home to us one day and we need them in good shape so that they can be leaders and they can help change our society christy the humane thing to do right <laughs> and it's the common sense thing to do it's but thank you so much for this incredible interview and um I can't wait to talk to you about uh, about things when they've changed. Thanks, Fritzi. Really nice to talk with you too. Thank you. If you are on the fence of ending solitary confinement, I hope this conversation with Dr. Montross changed your mind. Um, what an extraordinary woman and what an extraordinary uh, pers perspective on what we're doing within the walls of prisons. Please write to your congressmen, your senators, and your governors and make sure they're aware of how you feel about the practices of solitary confinement. Thank you for watching and please like, subscribe and share this podcast so we can spread the word about changing the prison paradigm. Thank you. <laughs>